Life Audio. Hey, welcome back to the Gospel Rant. This is our special series through First Thessalonians. Uh, we actually haven't covered much in First Thessalonians yet. We're doing the the context. So the first podcast was about cultural context. We looked at the Romans, the Greeks. We looked at the benefactor system. We looked at sex. We looked at religion, a number of things, just kind of set the tone. We're trying to get into, into Paul's head. That's the first podcast. Second podcast, we started looking at the second missionary journey post-Troas, and that's where we are right now. We're picking up with Paul headed to Thessalonica. Okay, but before we do, I want to get a word from our sponsors. Thanks for Life Audio for for being a platform for us. And uh, here we go. Listen to a few of our sponsors. But look around you, your family, your faith. They're not in the way. They are the way. From the creators of Jesus Revolution comes the incredible true story. It's going to be dangerous and scary and giving up. It's not an option. The story of one family's journey from down under to center stage. Unsung hero of her king and country film starring Candace Cameron Bure and Terry O'Quinn. In theaters now. Visit unsunghero.movie to learn more. Rated PG. Parental guidance suggested. What impacts you every day? There is one book that influences almost every aspect of our lives. Museum of the Bible reveals the Bible's impact on your favorite musicians and artists, the way we measure time, social justice, our national monuments, and more. The Bible's impact is all around you. Discover how at museumofthebible.org impact. So welcome back. We're going to begin in Acts 17.1. And remember, our goal is to get into Paul's head, to figure out what he's thinking, what he's learning, what he's doing, how he's adapting, uh, his his emotions, how is he dealing with people, particularly these new types of people that he's bumping into, how is the gospel being portrayed differently. I think it's all fascinating. Uh, he's going from Macedonia to Achaia. It's It's fascinating, fascinating stuff. Okay? We're going to pick up at Acts 17.1. When they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica where there was a Jewish synagogue. As his custom was, Paul went to the synagogue, and on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that the Christ had to suffer and rise from the dead. This Jesus I am proclaiming to you is the Christ, he said, a very Jewish messianic message. Verse 4, some of the Jews were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a number of God-fearing Greeks and not a few prominent women. All right, remember, they were just beat with rods, beat with sticks, brutal, bloody, thrown into jail, bloody, naked, uncomfortable, and a day later, 24 hours later, they're leaving Philippi and going on the Via Ignatia. And you can imagine they're still suffering from PTSD and shock and an immense physical bodily pain. 100 miles, uh, a five-day, four-day journey. The Via Ignatia is probably crowded, as we mentioned before, with different kinds of people, soldiers, merchants, teachers, philosophers, tradesmen, and women, missionaries, priests, entertainment people, um, people who are, who are raising money, who, are, who make their living, think carny, but also prostitutes. 
They didn't stop at these two cities because there was no synagogue, we, we think. And this was Paul's practice, it would seem. Um, uh, it's going to change a little bit. He's got to adapt. And, and I would say, this is a good place to say that there are lots of different kinds of people on the road. There would have been people, and Paul's going to bump into this and, and this caricature. There's people who made their living going from place to place, speaking of the gods or religion or spirit or philosophy, and they had a bag of tricks. Think carnies. They, uh, they made money off of unsuspecting people. That's how they made their living. They maybe sold talismans from Egypt or Rome or mystery religions. But bottom line, they were crooks. They were scam artists. They used people. And Paul is going to have to, Paul and Silas and Timothy are going to have to defend their authenticity wherever they go. And we'll definitely see it in Thessalonica. It just, it just makes sense. They weren't alone carrying words of saviors, right? When he got to Thessalonica, he spoke in the synagogue. Very likely, Paul's resume opened up all kind of Jewish doors. I mean, certainly he was at least a a candidate to be on the Jerusalem Sanhedrin. So he was something special. He was taught by the great Gamaliel. So he would have been more than welcome to speak in these smaller synagogues throughout Macedonia and Achaia. And probably, maybe these people never had visitors of such import from Jerusalem. I had, uh, uh, when I was a church planter, a small church, and we were so excited to have professors from seminary come or people from the denomination come. Uh, who had resumes, who had done great things, and, and we felt so very honored. And I'm sure that's what happened in these synagogues. And Paul's argument to them, the Jewish synagogues, was, you know what? You don't have to wait for the Messiah promised by the scrolls. This is all in keeping with the scrolls. Jesus is the Messiah. He came, and he's here now, and I can tell you about him. And revival, the Spirit moved. They joined Paul and Silas, uh, many, some, does this mean converted, or did they become disciples? Well, some, and that's the implication that it's a small number of the Jews that they spoke to in Thessalonica. They were pytho in the Greek, which generally means to convince, to reasonably convince. So they bought his teaching. They were convinced at the merit of the theology that Jesus is the Messiah. Now, Again, as I've been saying before, Luke and Paul, it just seems like when the Spirit is really happening, the Spirit is evident from joy, hospitality, and and gratefulness, thanksgiving. And there's none mentioned here. So I'm going to suggest that they've made the first steps towards, but there's no sign of the Spirit yet, right? So here's the picture. A few of the Jews joined Paul's camp. All right, that's, that's important. But Many, many in the Greek, so lots of God-fearing Greeks. These were Greeks who had been worshiping with the Jews in the synagogue. They're second-class citizens, uh, not circumcised. They're not fully at the top of the food chain Jews. And few, Paul highlights again, protos women, prominent women. Again, There's something about this journey where the Bible is highlighting and honoring and recognizing women of faith. So these people um, joined Paul's camp as well. The women were likely, 
I'm guessing the way the, the proton prominent, probably of the wealthy benefactor class, upper class, or married to benefactors. And if the latter, it's, it's interesting then that their husbands are, aren't mentioned specifically. So the church moved and honored both sexes equally. Something for us to note today. Verse 5. But the Jews were jealous, so they rounded up some bad characters from the marketplace, formed a mob, and started a riot in the city. They rushed to Jason's house in search of Paul and Silas in order to bring them out to the crowd. So the Greek is emphatic. Jealous were the Jews. And we'll see this again and again and again. So my question, again, it's a rant. Why? Why were the Jews jealous? And note that this isn't disagreement on the facts or Paul's arguments. Luke notes jealousy, maybe because Paul's getting amazing attention. Maybe they were losing control and authority. Maybe they were losing people. Maybe they were losing financial support of female protons, uh, protos, benefactors. Maybe the convinced Jews weren't filled with love yet for the spirit, for their brothers and sisters. Maybe they acted mean towards them or judgmentally or who knows. Maybe they were critical. We don't know. But the Jews became jealous. So who's Jason? Well, he seems to be a person of some note in Thessalonica. It's kind of an indirect thing. But when Paul stands in front of the Politarchs, his name is tossed out there as if they would have known him. Uh, The prosecutors seem to assume that the rest of the Politarchs would have recognized the name. Some wonder, and I like this, if Jason was not only a wealthy benefactor, I mean, he's housing, hosting Paul and Silas, but maybe he was a politarch at, the, at that time or one time or another. Um, but he's identified now with the new movement, uh, Acts 17.6. But when they did not find them, Paul and Silas, they dragged Jason and some other brothers before the city officials shouting, these men who have caused trouble all over the world have now come here. <laughs> oh my goodness, a little exaggeration, right? Verse 7, and Jason welcomed them into his house they are all defying Caesar's decrees. Again, all, all of Caesar's decrees saying that there is another king, one called Jesus. Well, okay, they were saying that. But anyway, they couldn't, the, the rabble couldn't find Paul or Silas or Timothy, so they brought Jason, his host, and, and others. We don't know who that is, but probably people from the synagogue who were convinced of Paul's uh, truth. And they took him to the Politarchs. Remember, I said in the first podcast in the series that Greek, this was a Greek-free city, so they did their own justice. Paul and Silas's Roman citizenship would mean less here, technically, than it did in Philippi. But the charge was the same. These are people who are uh, causing trouble. They have an international rap sheet, and we're the latest on their journey leave them here, don't do something, and you're just going to stir up a riot, and Rome is going to notice us, and they're going to send the, their troops, and because this is disrupting the Pax Romana. So listen, these, these people are spitting in the face of the emperor himself. Remember in the benefactor system, you don't want to do that because you're going to cut off supply of money and honor. So that can't go well. Do you, I mean, do you want to lose all of the ample benefaction from wealthy Romans who support the emperor here and who pour money into our city, who do not want to do anything to undermine the popularity and the standing in the emperor's temple or worship or the worship of Roma? These guys are promoting a different king and they're requiring worship. That's Jesus, right? We couldn't locate the leaders, but here's Jason. We all know Jason. He's one of them. And by the way, he's hosting them now. So he's a conspirator. Prosecution 
rest. <laughs> so did it work? <clears throat> yeah. Luke tells us that this, this line of argument was ridiculously successful once more. Verse 8, when they heard this, the crowd and the city officials were thrown into turmoil. Then they made Jason and the others postpone and let them go. So a bit of a strange uh, recounting. And I think the NIV confuses things. It goes a little bit overboard uh, per the Greek. When they heard this, the crowd and the city officials were thrown into turmoil. Again, in the Greek, I think it's better they're troubled or confused. The word is terasso. So a little bit lesser. They were confused. They didn't know what to do. They were conf- they were troubled, worried maybe, implying that, uh, you know, they're going to take it out on Jason, but not too badly. They're not going to beat him with sticks. So again, maybe he was respected among them. So they, they just find him. That's a little bit less of a dishonor. So I suspect that um, Paul and Silas has concluded that that uh, if it had been them, they wouldn't have gotten the, the same treatment that, G, that Jason got. So it was time to go. Uh, so I would imagine there, there was some mob violence here. There was some suspicion that it would have gotten worse. And so, so Luke says in verse 10, as soon as it was night, the brothers sent Paul and Silas away to Berea. On arriving there, they went to the Jewish synagogue. So either the fine was great or uh, they, they really were suspecting danger they sent Paul and Silas, not Timothy. So Timothy probably stayed in Thessalonica. That's people's assumption. And they walked the next day 50 miles uh, on the Via Ignatia again uh, to Berea. Verse 11. Now the Bereans were of more noble character than the Thessalonians, for they received the message with great eagerness and examined the scripture every day to see if what Paul said was true. So you've heard pastors talk about be like the Bereans. Well, noble character better understood, I think, today. They were high status. These were upper class. This was a vacation town. So they were the educated. They were open to other views. They weren't closed-minded. They didn't. They weren't tending towards jealousy as much. I mean, that's the idea. The Bereans were kind of upper crust, educated people, right? Make sense? Verse 12, and many, many this time of the Jews believed. Different reaction than uh, Thessalonica, where some of the Jews were only convinced. Uh, Luke continues, as also did a number of prominent Greek women. Here they are again. These are benefactor, aristocratic women who were Greek, and many Greek men as well. But he doesn't doesn't, uh, describe them as prominent. So once again, the gospel and women, it's it's just repeated in this journey. So this time, Luke notes that there were many Jews who actually believed. They weren't just convinced. And these were Eskumen Greek women. So uh, meaning they were women who were especially worthy of public admiration. They were prominent women of high standing repute. They were noble. So think powerful, generous female benefactors. Uh, Plural, no mention of many, and a few men. Uh, Berea was was a, a remarkable success. Verse 13, when the Jews in Thessalonica learned that Paul was preaching the word of God at Berea, again, only 50 miles away, those Jews were still jealous, apparently, because they went there too, agitating the crowd and stirring them up. Uh, that's the formula throughout Achaia and uh, Macedonia. 
If you're a Roman colony or a free city in Rome, your job was to keep the Roman soldiers out. If the Roman soldiers came in, they would do what they did in Jerusalem a few years later and just destroy the entire city of Jerusalem. So you want to be able to handle matters in yourself. Justice is important, right? The Roman law, but the big deal is you don't want to riot because then you get attention from Rome. You could either lose money from benefactors or you get the Roman uh, soldiers involved. All right, so um, they agitated and stirred up the crowd. The word is salueod. They disturbed inwardly. So they whispered something in the crowd's ears or dropped them a coin, whatever it was, and they tarassoed them. Same word we've seen before, caused confusion. The idea is this anti-Paul momentum was really easy to ignite um, and even successful among the higher class in Berea. And likely they... uh, I would think the upper class would have been confused when the crowd started talking about losing Rome's benefaction, right? 14, the brothers immediately sent Paul to the coast, but Silas and Timothy stayed at Berea. When Paul went alone to the coast, oh, so I I correct myself, uh, Silas uh, and and Timothy are in Berea, not in Thessalonica. So there we are. It's a rant, so we'll just keep on going. Paul went uh, alone to the coast in Athens. So part walking down to the coast and then a ship into Athens. The Bereans went with Paul to make sure he was fine. Silas and Timothy stayed in Berea. So clearly, Paul was the face of the movement. He ignited a crowd, or they were able to use him to ignite the crowd. But now, Paul's stuck alone. He doesn't have a benefactor with him, without a partners in crime, no Luke, no Silas, no Timothy, and he's headed into an urban setting, polytheism, philosophy, agnostics of, 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 of Athens. And, and there he'll have very little success. It's, it's, uh, this will be a hard, hard, hard time for Paul. His scars are uh, probably still hurting. His muscles are probably still hurting. And so he begins to think and be concerned and be anxious even that all of his suffering was for naught, uh, that it was in vain. And all the work in Macedonia and Philippi and Thessalonica and Berea is gone, torn down. The the crowd won. Uh, Satan has won, right? He's worried. He's actually worried about that, as we'll see in the letter to the first, uh, first Thessalonians. But he's going to learn more about the Spirit. And the Spirit's role in all of this. I think this is fascinating. Verse 15, the men who escorted Paul brought him to Athens and then left with instructions for Silas and Timothy to join him as soon as possible. While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. Uh, Paraxuno, greatly distressed, maybe a little too strong. He was irritated. He was angered. Probably a good word. All right. All right, we need to listen to some sponsors again, but we will be right back. What impacts you every day? There is one book that influences almost every aspect of our lives. Museum of the Bible reveals the Bible's impact on your favorite musicians and artists, the way we measure time, social justice, our national monuments, and more. The Bible's impact is all around you. Discover how at museumofthebible.org slash impact. 
Hi, everyone. If you've been injured in an accident that was not your fault, listen up. We have legal professionals standing by to answer your questions for free. Call now and find out if you have a case and how much it's potentially worth. Call 800-497-4410. I'm here with spokesman John Wolfe. So, John, tell everyone listening who should call right now. Well, Maria, first off, thank you for having me here. It's always nice to answer the listeners' questions. Now, as far as who should call in, anyone who's been injured in an accident and think you deserve compensation, give us a call right now. 800-497-4410. You'll find out if you have a case and how much it's potentially worth. Thanks, John. You heard it, folks. Take advantage of this opportunity and call now. 800-497-4410. Advertisement sponsored by Legal Help Center may not be available in all states. Okay, welcome back. Verse 17. So Paul reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace day by day with those who happened to be there. And this was appropriate in Athens. I mean, this was the Socratic method. You walk through the street, you uh, talk to people, you ask questions. This would have been well-received. Um, and no note of any conversions, notice, by them, either being convinced or that they believed. No sense of joy, no sense of hospitality. Paul is alone. Verse 18, a group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to dispute with him. So he drew a crowd. As he was asking questions, some professionals came up, the Epicureans. They emphasized the quality of life and experience now. Eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow you may die. Pleasure, experience of pleasure, the highest of good, and won't last. So you take advantage of it now. You enjoy the present. The Stoics taught that, you know, you should be a little more reticent. You should live your life accepting the goods and the bads, the vagaries of the universe, because ultimately you don't have control. So it's reasonable that you attempt to live your life with honor, with respect, without drama, and, and you use your reason as, as much as possible. Now, the Stoics believed that the soul survived the body. The Epicureans could care less about that. It was all about the current life. All right, two different points of view, long extant in Achaia, in Athens. So probably by this time, these two philosophies blurred like much of religion today in the United States. I mean, the, the, you know, differences just are blurring. So possibly it's just intellectual exercise that really just changes no one's lives. Um, dispute doesn't, in, in, uh, in verse 18, dispute doesn't mean fist fighting or arguing. It really is dialoguing, a mutual pondering, someone called it. These are, these are professional philosophers, right? This is what they do. They dialogue, they argue, they make points. They, it's like playing chess, right? I mean, again, does it really change their life? Does it create joy and hospitality and thankfulness? Apparently not. This is their hobby. This is their job. This is how they raise money, by the way. Uh, but they're, they're focused on challenging their thoughts and their new ideas and concepts and philosophies and making points in an argument. But think more emotionally detached, uh, uh, right, uh, reasonably. And that would be true for the Epicureans, even though they're, they're, they're satisfying the flesh, their brain is pretty detached, I'm, I'm, I'm suggesting. They're not thinking of, you know, becoming Jews or followers of anything. They're not dissatisfied with their lives. I mean, they're hard-hearted, the, the Bible would call them. 
So they need the power of the gospel to break in to do what happened to Lydia. And it would be obvious because it would be filled with joy, hospitality, and thankfulness, right? So some of them asked, what is this babbler trying to say? And others remarked, he seems to be advocating foreign gods. They, say, they said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. I love Luke's description here. Uh, he's not there, so he's, he, he's going to get this with word of mouth through Paul or Timothy or, 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 uh, or Silas. So you can hear the arrogance, can't you? You can hear the despise, the argumentation, the, uh, the stab, right? To get a rise out of your opponent or, or to make them look despised. They call him a seed picker. So think of a bird on the concrete bouncing around and, and picking up little crumbs and seeds here and there. No real meal, no tactics, no strategy, no brains, just a scavenger, right? Not worthy of even being considered. So it's pejorative. It's this imagery of people whose communication lacks sophistication. Uh, so they're just, they're just rolling stuff into a ball, and there it is. <laughs> and, and they misunderstood, these smart people. They misunderstood that Paul was talking about two gods, Jesus, God number one, and the resurrection, God number two. And they, they had heard of similar gods, uh, in, in the pantheon, right? And they, the resurrection wouldn't have been a new concept to them. They're, they had heard of gods coming back to life, but Epicureans, eh, it just wasn't interesting to them because they didn't want to think about death. And the Stoics really were about, you know, how do I really avoid emotion and turmoil and stress and anxiety in my life today? So, you know, this wasn't scratching their itch philosophically. They weren't interested in following a new person or submitting to some god or wondering about what happened when you died. That just wasn't their thing. So here's their last gambit. Um, they're going to take him to the Areopagus. I think it's a setup. That's how I'm reading it. We'll continue. Here's verse 19. They took Paul, brought him to a meeting of the Areopagus, where they said to him, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? You're bringing some strange ideas to our ears when we want to know what they mean. Again, I think it's a setup when they called it strange ideas. That could actually mean danger. People could actually get uh, pummeled, uh, beat for strange ideas. So here... I think the, the people who invited him are just expecting Paul to be demolished. They think Paul is just not ready for, for a prime time. Uh, the Areopagus was huge uh, historically, and even then, the authority to disqualify traveling philosophers. So think totally shame me. If the Areopagus goes, says, this is ridiculous, you are shamed, you have, really will have no effect in Athens. So I think this was setting Paul up for a quick fail. So uh, in verse 21, Luke adds, all the Athenians and foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. I mean, you can hear their frustration. It is not affecting their lives. Christianity, when we fall into that mold, we are worthless. And, and I think we tend to do that. It's about changed lives, right? Joy, thankfulness, hospitality. Verse 22, Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and said, men of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. And by the way, men of Athens, don't think this is being uh, misogynistic. All of the philosophers in the Greek culture at that time in Areopagus, we can basically assume were men. Just, just saying. He was actually addressing the crowd. 
though they had many, many gods and goddesses, including the worship of Roma and the emperor. So they couldn't deny that they were religious. It's just a strange thing for them to say because the philosophers would have been surprised to be called religious. They're really rationalist, uh, but they're looking around going, you know, we can't really say this because we will be accused of standing against Roma and the emperor. So, all right, call us religious. That's fine. It's a good first shot by Paul. Uh, it's dis- it's, uh, it's a good uh, first move on the chessboard. They couldn't disagree with that without setting themselves against the emperor cult. And by the way, benefactors of that cult, verse 23. And, and their lives, they were probably supported by benefactors. They probably didn't have to work. All they had to do was walk around and ask questions. Verse 23, for as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription to an unknown God. Now what you worship as something unknown, I'm going to proclaim to you. Smart, philosophical, um, not a seed picker at all. Paul's views are in play. Uh, I'm going to read a larger section now. The Lord God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temple built by hands. He probably pointed up to the Acropolis because the Areopagus is right beneath the Acropolis. And he, this God, is not served by human hands as if he needed anything because he himself gives all men life and breath and everything else. Uh, And by the way, the everything else would include the spirit working. Verse 26, from one man, he made every nation of men, Adam, right? That they should inhabit the whole earth. And he determined the time set for them and the exact places where they should live. God did this so that men would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. Very philosophical. For in him, we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offsprings. Therefore, since we are God's offsprings, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by God's man's design and skill. All right, so notice he's, he's clear that he has a non-Jewish audience. He's not using Jewish phrases or imagery. No need to talk about the Old Testament scrolls or the Messiah. He refers to Adam, but doesn't name him doesn't even speak about Jesus's teaching specifically. He doesn't say much about sin either. Uh, We can read that into the word repent, which he'll say in verse 30, but I don't think they would have heard that or thought that he meant that. Paul is all about them becoming followers of Jesus, but he's, look, he's requiring the Spirit to convict them of sin. And sometimes that's the order. And, And actually, I think often. Verse 30, in the past, God overlooks such ignorance. I've come back to that. But now he commands all people everywhere to repent. All right, look, that had to raise eyebrows when he called this august Areopagus philosophers ignorant. (laughs) Um, Right? They had referred to Paul as a bird brain, and now he implies that they're the ones who are really ignorant. They're missing the bigger picture. They are idiots, uh, and so and then he charges them to repent. And and I don't think he had, uh, let's see, how can I put this? I don't think they would have heard repent of sin. We write that in as, as New Testament Christians. I think he's basically saying the course you're on, it's, it's ignorance. You need to pursue wisdom and the wisdom has to do with Jesus. So come become a follower of Jesus with me. Uh, I also want to point out all people. This is hardly what they expected from a Jew. A bold statement, even today, I think. This God is not regional or of one class or another or even one sex. This 
God commands all male, female, sinners to follow him equally. And I think that this is the one thing that most appealed to the women. They were equal followers, right? There was not male followers and female followers. They were followers. Verse 71, for he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to all men by raising him from the dead. Boom. So there is a judge, not Caesar, not the politarchs, not the proconsul. There is a judge. Um, that probably didn't grab their attention, though it could have. I mean, this was the charge that got Paul booted out from every other Greek city. Verse 32, when they heard about the resurrection of the dead, see, that's what they heard. That's the headline. Some of them sneered, Keluazzo, uh, which is mocked. They mocked him. They, they were, got snarky. But others said, we want to hear you on the subject again. It was over. Next philosopher. Brief. And I would point out, no spirit, no joy, no belief, no hospitality. Are you with me? Verse 33, at that, Paul left the council. 34, a few men became followers of Paul. Here it is, and believed. So a few did. Some believers, not many, including one of the Areopagus, which is, which is brilliant, fantastic. So think influencer, philosopher. This is one of the, the, the culture shapers. Um, think benefactor. And, and notable women, again. Uh, this is what, you know, again, what's happened to Christianity that we're offend, we've offended so many women? Jesus and Paul were magnets for women, notable influential women, as well as prostitutes and, and moms and, and daughters. So uh, the Dionysus was that member of the Areopagus and also a woman named Damaris and a number of others. Again, Luke is noting uh, the conversion of a woman. Acts 18.1, after this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. So maybe he stayed in Athens two months. Uh, Paul, uh, Luke is very brief. A lot of stuff probably happened in those two months. Maybe he set up a church there. Maybe... Uh, maybe he spoke regularly in the synagogue. We, we don't know. Apparently, Luke didn't find that very important. So timing, December 49, perhaps January 50, Silas and Timothy arrive in Corinth, maybe spring of 50. And then Paul writes the letter to 1 Thessalonians immediately. Okay? So Acts 18.2, we're now in Corinth. We're going really quickly. I apologize for that, but I want to get to 1 Thessalonians. There Paul met in, in, in Corinth a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, who had recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, uh, because Claudius, Emperor Claudius, had ordered all Jews to leave Rome. Paul went to see them. We often see Priscilla mentioned first in the list, Priscilla and Aquila, implying, I think this makes sense, that she was of higher rank than her husband, Socially, societally, again, probably an aristocrat, benefactor, a family, even though that's not what she's doing now. Some speculate that she and, uh, and Aquila actually co-wrote Hebrews. Isn't that fascinating? Interesting, provocative. We don't know who wrote Hebrews, and they, they're good as candidate as any, but it's a guess. Uh, and we know that Jews were expelled from Rome by Emperor Claudius. We don't know why. Listen, what we've seen already with Paul, it's, it makes sense to suggest that uh, Christian missionaries got the same 
uh, same uh, problem with jealous Jews as Paul did. In one writing, one uprising was blamed on Crestus. Some people speculate that was Christ, so it could be, but we do know that the emperor had Jews expelled from Rome, and they went all over the, the empire. And here are two who went to Corinth, and timely so for Paul. So Paul hooked up with Priscilla and Aquila because he was also a tent maker, as they were, and he stayed and worked with them every Sabbath. He reasoned in the synagogue, trying to persuade Jews and Greeks. So he likely visited the Agora, which is the city square, and found this tent-making couple, Aquila and Priscilla. Did he have an introduction to them, a mutual friend? Had he heard of their faith? Maybe, uh, maybe they were among the believers who were exiled from Rome. We don't know. Uh, we just don't know. They hooked up with Paul because he was a tent maker like them. They probably had the typical two-story open-air shop on one of the roads within the city center of Corinth. They probably lived upstairs. Likely, Paul joined them there. Meanwhile, Paul was enjoying the privilege of teaching in the synagogue. No doubt he continued to persuade in the shop and in the gore with customers and such. But he seems to be, unlike in other places, he seems to be hanging under the radar. Is Paul struggling with a little PTSD here? Is he looking for a new plan, a new strategy? I don't know, but he seems to have adapted. He's still doing his thing. He's paying the bills. He's speaking with people in the synagogue, and I'm sure in the street. But you know what? He's without his key companions. He doesn't have any major benefactors here in Corinth, so he's having to work for a living. I mean, I think that's how we have to see that. When Silas and Timothy came from Macedonia, Paul devoted himself exclusively to preaching, testifying to the Jews that Jesus was the Christ. Maybe Silas and Timothy brought a financial gift from one of the Macedonian churches, very likely, or from the benefactors who became Jesus followers that we pointed out. So maybe Paul was able to drop tent making. Maybe he found support and confidence from Silas and Timothy and, uh, you know, stuck his head over the mud. Verse 6. But when the Jews opposed Paul and became abusive, he shook out his clothes in protest and said to them, your blood be on your heads. I'm clear of my responsibility. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. Uh, we're told that they had not only opposed him, but they blasphemed him <laughs> in the Greek, slandered, denigrated, maligned, maybe even lied about him. He'd seen it before. He, maybe he was ready for this strategy with a new strategy. So he he shook off his clothes in protest and 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 left. And uh, you know what? He's gone to the Gentiles before, so I think this was a, a new strategy. Are you with me? Then Paul left the synagogue and went next door to the house of Titius Justus, a worshiper of God. Crispus, the synagogue ruler and his entire household, believed in the Lord, and many of the Corinthians who heard him believed and were baptized. One night the Lord spoke to Paul in a vision, do not be afraid, keep on speaking, do not be silent, for I am with you and no one is going to attack and harm you because I have many people in this city. Well, that would have been news to Paul that there were that many. Maybe the vision is speaking of people who will become. But anyway, it's a great success. Uh, this strategy, Titius Justice is a new benefactor for Paul. So he's under his care. He's a, a God-fearer who seems now is a, is a Paul follower and a believer, we're told, sign of the Spirit. The synagogue ruler Crispus becomes a believer, sign of the Spirit, and many other Corinthians. And God just adds on top of that, icing on the cake, just to encourage Paul. So Paul stays there for a year and a half. This is so rare for Paul, and he's teaching them the Word of God. He's building up the church. 
Verse 12, while Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews made a united attack on Paul and brought him into court. This man they charged is persuading the people to worship God in ways contrary to the law. Just as Paul was about to speak, Gallio said to the Jews, if you Jews were making a complaint about some misdemeanor or serious crime, it would be reasonable for me to listen to you. But since it involves questions about words and names and your own law, settle the matter yourself. I will not be a judge of such things. So he had them ejected from court. Then they all turned to Onsothenes, the synagogue ruler, and beat him in front of the court. But Gallio showed them no concern whatever. Strange scene. Here in the very Roman Corinth, no politarchs, only a proconsul who's expected to keep the peace and administer justice. His job, his career, his family safety, everything depends upon keeping the peace. We have a historical record, by the way, of Gallio based upon uh, previous times. Paul is brought before justice. We expect the prosecutor to say Paul is undermining Caesar and the Pax Romana. But here, the Jews make a different argument that doesn't work. They say he's leading people to a wrong way of worshiping God. Well, Gallio is just unimpressed. He's unmoved by that argument. I don't think he cares. It's, it's a religious debate, they say, not a case for a Roman court. So therefore, a waste of his time. Uh, he's indifferent. Paul doesn't even need to make a counter argument. He doesn't proclaim, need to proclaim Roman citizenship because he doesn't need a defense. The, the Jews in Corinth blow it. So Gallio ejects the Jews. He shames the Jews, right? And the court is in an area around the Bema and the central Agora. It's there, probably covered with tents. So people would have seen, they would have been deeply embarrassed. So the Jewish mob grabs Sosthenes, I, I, I would imagine a Jewish mob, likely the one who was the lead prosecutor who blew it. And it would appear that Crispus, the previous synagogue ruler had been relieved of his duties when he became a Jesus follower or he resigned, or maybe there were multiple synagogue rulers. We don't know. Either way, the crowd takes out their anger and frustration on Sosthenes. They beat him, <laughs> which is what we expected to happen to, happen to Paul based on, upon history. And Gallio could care less. He indifferently watches. I mean, really? Luke doesn't record Paul's response. Um, again, I could make it up. I think it would be fun to speculate, but it's not recorded. We get a second mention of Sosthenes in 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 1 as part of a salutation of Paul's letter to the Corinthians. Paul called to be an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God and our brother Sosthenes to the church of God in Corinth. Isn't that fascinating? Here, and if it's the same person, and we can you know romantically think it is, he has become a believer too, and was either a voice in crafting of the letter or a scribe. If this is the same Sosthenes, it would be dramatic evidence of the transforming power of the gospel. Verse 18, Paul stayed on in Corinth for some time, uh, again, 18, 19 months. Then he left the brothers and sailed for Syria, accompanied by Priscilla and Aquila. Before he sailed, he had his hair cut off at Sincrea where Phoebe was because of the vow he had taken. So Paul wants to go to Jerusalem to celebrate Yom Kippur along with other pilgrims. This was And cutting hair as a Levite was something that, that uh, Jews did, and he was pleased to do that. But he was in Corinth under two years, and from there he likely wrote both letters to the Thessalonians. That's where we'll pick up next time. Uh, again, this is a bit of a larger podcast. Thank you for being patient with me. We'll pick it up there. Thanks again to lifeaudio.com. Check them out. Check their site out for more podcasts. We'll pick this up with the letter 
of Paul to 1 Thessalonians in our next podcast. Take heart, child of God. If you're hearing this right now, you're probably like, who the heck is this and why are they playing during my favorite podcast? And I get it. I don't want to take up too much of your time, but I do want to introduce myself. My name is Trevor Tyson, and I'm the host of Trevor Talks, where we talk to real people about real topics and real stories. I just want to invite you, if you love podcasts, if you love music, if you love books and love hearing from the people who create it, come check us out at Trevor Talks. Simply go to Google or Life Audio, type in Trevor Talks, and it'll pop on up. Hope you have a great day.